recommended that I might stand down there on the floor, but I'm short. <laughs> so my dad was 6'4", but his dad was shorter than I am, so somewhere in the middle is where I fall. I will tell you quickly about how much I appreciate the congregation here at White Oak. If I'm not mistaken, you the congregation here started helping me do mission work 29 years ago, 1994. I left full-time work to go into mission work. And then 11 plus years ago, right at 11 years ago, no, 12 years ago, I started preaching in a little town called Adel, Georgia. And Adel is still a small congregation, but spiritually strong. We had had three, uh, three, four baptisms in the last year or so. And what's interesting is one of those was a man who had been coming for many years. He lived in a nursing home. He had heard the gospel over and over and over and over. And uh, finally he was talking about his birthday. He was going to be 80 years old. And one of our men sat down to him and called him by name said, You know, just given the odds, you're not going to be here much longer. Are you sure you're ready to go to heaven? And over the course of time and some Bible study, uh, he has the man is not able to walk without a walker. Two of our men took him down into the baptistry, baptized him for the forgiveness of sins. And he had been coming, well, since before I went to Adel. And he sits up in the front, and he's there every time he can, as long as he gets a ride. And one of the other men had become a Christian because of a funeral we had there. And he, he, he saw the interaction of the people and became interested. And I studied with him and baptized him. The other two are, I won't get into the details, but they, we've had four in the last 12 months. Some of them fell our way. Some of them we sought out. It takes an effort on everybody's part. Brother Ron was talking about the, the teaching that Brother Mike Hickson and I do. We started school together in 1982. He preaches in Olive Branch, Mississippi. And we got to talking about four years ago uh, about a request from the Jamaica School of Preaching. And we had been asked if we would help teach classes online for the students there. And so we did that for three years. Last year we were at Polishing the Pulpit and I was speaking about some, maybe like to do some things a little differently. And he said, well, Rog, why don't you start your own school? Well, I sat there and thought about that for a minute or two and, and his wife sitting there said, yeah. I said, okay. So we started talking about how we would do it and our goal for the, our school is called the International Academy of Biblical Studies. You can thank Nancy Hickson for the name, but we liked it too. Our goal is to try and reach these foreign national preachers to help them to develop leadership in the local congregations. They have never seen elders. They've read about them. They've never seen any. But we're all, we started from the ground up with these brothers that Ron mentioned in Uganda. Five of them didn't even have a Bible when we started, so we got Bibles for them. And we've gone through our first quarter of studies with them. And it's been real good. It's been eye-opening. Sometimes Brother Peter Wondera, who is our contact there, he will 
interpret from English to I don't even know what language he's speaking. There are so many in the African continent. But we're reaching men who really are benefiting. And one of our students has been baptized already. And we're, very, we're not the only reason, but we feel like we had at least a small part in it. So we pray that we can continue doing that online and reach more countries. Pray that Roger and Mike will have wisdom in doing this because we're still trying to figure out how we want to do all of it. And we know we need more teachers and more help. But I appreciate the congregation here for putting their confidence in me. I have fond memories of my uncle Garnet. And he's probably the reason all this got started. Because you all didn't know who I was. But he did. This morning we're going to be looking at a lesson from the fourth chapter of John. In Jesus' encounter with the woman of Sychar in Samaria. We're going to do as much as we can with this text without keeping you longer than necessary, but to see some key elements in this story. We see that verse 1 says that the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making baptizing more disciples than John. Actually, it was the Lord's disciples doing the baptizing, not he himself. And so he left Judea to go to Galilee. But the notice, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. In Luke 19, verse 10, the Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. It would Your typical Jew would go around Samaria, take the long way around, and, and not go through there because there were no dealings and they hated one another. I am convinced, as one brother David Lipe said, he said, I believe that Jesus went, he had to go through Samaria because he looked at this as an, as an evangelistic opportunity. And I believe he's right. The word had in verse 4 has a force to it that it was like a, a must be kind of thing. So he comes to this city named Sychar, which is in Samaria, and you'll notice that's near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So that gives the Samaritan people some connection with the Jewish people. Not, not as the full bloodline, but they were related. And we see that Jacob's well was there, and I find it amazing that it was still there after all those years and still usable. But if you'll read, the woman said that the well is deep and so it was still able to produce drinking water for people and for animals. And so Jesus comes and sits down at the well. Now if you're looking at uh, Roman time, it's about noon. Uh, it's, if you're looking at Jewish time, it's around 6 p.m. Either way, he's weary from his journey just like any other human being and he sits down and this woman comes to draw water. And she is indeed a Samaritan. And I was thinking about how Jesus did not see a Samaritan. I'm not sure he really saw a woman. I believe that Jesus saw a soul that needed salvation. And he takes advantage of this opportunity to speak to this woman. And she was a Samaritan. And she was a woman. So she, he comes, she comes to the well and 
To her surprise, give me a drink, Jesus said. Now, precious people, the Jewish people would not drink from a utensil that a Samaritan had used. They would have become ceremonially unclean for doing that. They, they probably wouldn't have done it even if it would not have made them ceremonial, un, ceremonial unclean. There's also a second aspect, aspect to this. My research says that a Jewish man would not speak even to his own wife in public. I don't understand that, but that's, that's what I've been, that's what I've read. Now you think about this situation. Jesus is not just a Jewish man. We know he's the Son of God. She doesn't know it yet. He speaks to a woman in public and a Samaritan woman at that. And I'm thinking that Jesus is looking past all these barriers because, as you know, when the southern kingdom went into the Syrian captivity in the early 7th century B.C., they, they began to mingle with and intermarry with other nations, and they were not really purebred Hebrew people anymore. There's a lot more to that, and you can research it on your own as to why there were no dealings with them. But we just know that the dealings were not simply, we just don't like them. We don't want anything to do with those people. Now Jesus is not, he doesn't see things the way that we do. But we do see she was a Samaritan. And secondly, she was a separated woman. And what I mean by separated, she was separated from the Hebrew people. She was different. And, and, And Jesus knew all about it. We have too many people hung up on our racial differences. We have too many hang-ups on our cultural differences. We have too many hang-ups on our socioeconomic differences. Jesus didn't have any hang-ups. He just saw a woman that was lost and needed salvation, the salvation of her soul. He prods her. The woman is surprised. He says, She says in verse 9, How is it that you... Being a Jew, ask for a drink from me since I'm a Samaritan woman. Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew. I want you to watch the strategy of Jesus as he teaches us how he evangelized this woman. If you knew. That automatically places in her mind something to think about. If I knew what? If you knew who it was that is asking you for a drink, who it was, that's got to be stirring her mind. Now listen, we're reading this narrative that's probably been somewhat condensed. Can you imagine the conversation? He might have paused there, let her think about that for a minute. If you knew who was asking you for a drink of water, and we don't have any proof as to how the timeline played out, how long he would have waited, But he said, if you knew the gift of God, that's the first question. The second one is, who it is that's asking you for a drink. Thirdly, you would have asked, you would have made a request of him. What is that? You would have asked him for living water. Now I can imagine being this woman here for a second thinking, what in the world are you talking about if you knew who I was? And, and so he's, 
teaching her to, to think and process this. And well, we know who he was, but she didn't know. She'd never met the Lord. There's, there's a good chance, the way the narrative reads, that she'd never even heard of Christ being there yet. Because you remember how it played out after she talked to him. She goes back to the city. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the one? And so Jesus said to her, if you knew, number one, the gift of God, number two, who is talking to you, or says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now think about how this plays out for with us for just a moment. What would she have done if she had known who it was? And yet he doesn't tell her he's offering living water. He said, but if you knew who was saying this, you'd be asking for that. Listen, Jesus was the master teacher and had a, was a master in teaching us how to pride people's minds to get them to think. I want you to study this text and look at all the the ways that Jesus sought to get this woman to think about what was going on here. We know who it was, but she did not know who it was. So she said to him, Sir, she's being respectful. You don't have anything to draw with. And this well is, is deep. It's, I understand it's about 100 feet deep. And if you want to get the best water, you've got to go down to the bottom of the well where it's coming up out of the ground. Well, you don't, you don't even have anything to draw with. You had no bucket, nothing. And she said, where are you going to get this water? Well, at least he's got her to thinking, hasn't he? Where are you going to get this water? I love this story. And I love the interactions and the way this woman responded to him. And he said, well, let me tell you what. Everybody who drinks this water, they'll come back for more. They'll thirst again. But I'm going to offer some water. If you drink of it, you will never be thirsty again. Now remember, she doesn't know who this is. And this is probably the first, maybe the first time in her life she's ever heard of living water or somebody offering her some kind of water that's going to, that you don't have to ask for it anymore. You know, they, they talk about what is this smart water they're selling. It's no smarter than filling up your water bottle from a filter at home, but they sell it. Well, Jesus is not talking about smart water. He's talking about, he's really not talking about water at all, is he? Not really. We know that without water, you can't live. Your body fully depends on being hydrated on a regular basis. And so it's, it's a staple of life that you cannot do without. And Jesus uses that as an illustration. He said, let me tell you something about this living water. Number one, it is a, it is a gift. Not only that, it will spring up to eternal life, verse 14. You know, he's talking about salvation. You can't earn it. For God so loved the world that He what? Gave. We didn't ask for Him. He gave His only begotten Son. We didn't deserve Him. He gave His only begotten Son. I'm going to give you something, lady. And I'm going to give you something that will help you to never be thirsty again. 
In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, if you want to note this, Jeremiah 2.13 speaks of God being the fountain of living waters. I don't know if she knew that, but Jesus knew that. God's the source of living waters. And maybe during the time when the children of Israel were under God's hand, there was a lot, there were a lot more physical aspects to their relationship than there were spiritual. But under Christ, the, the bulk of our blessings are spiritual. Ephesians 1 verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, they're in Christ. We're more blessed spiritually. But Jesus is claiming in His own way to be a fountain or a source of something that would give her eternal life. So, 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 so in the third place, we have a surprised woman. And then you get down here to verse 15. Now this word's a little tricky, but I had to do the S's, okay? Sub, sublinary woman. That is a woman who thought only of earthly things. I'm reminded of Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth in Florida. I've been there. You don't want that water. It's not good. And he didn't find it, did he? Ponce de Leon, de Leon didn't find any Fountain of Youth. No such thing exists physically. And chances are she's probably thinking about physical water. And Jesus says in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. Well, verse 15, she said, sir, give me this water. I want some of that. And I'm thinking, is she thinking about physical things? Absolutely. If I could have this water, I wouldn't even have to come back to the well. That would be fantastic. And I don't know how far she had to walk, but no doubt she had to do that every single day. And, and, And a lot of the women did the farm work. They'd water the animals. They'd bring the water for the house, for the cooking, and whatever else they used it for. She said, you know, that'd be great if I didn't have to make all these trips. You know, and I know that's not what Jesus is talking about. But I want you to think, <clears throat> a lot of people, when it comes to God or Christ, they want the physical answers. Why do they knock on our doors asking for physical help? Because they've just done the same thing down the street to somebody else, and all they want is somebody to help them so they don't have to do anything themselves. I'm not saying everybody's that way. They're not. And then there are a lot of people that think that the major benefit of being a Christian is physical in nature. I think I'm convinced that my wife and I studied with a couple a few years ago, and this, and I'm convinced that this gentleman was convinced that if he became a Christian, all his problems would go away. Well, they didn't, but they could have been dealt with. The Bible would teach him how to deal with them. But he was disappointed and so he just quit. How one approaches the Lord will determine the direction they'll go when they get involved in studying about it. Does God promise special blessings physically? Oh yeah. Matthew 6.33 Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's not promised to unbelievers. But where do we place our real values? Is it on the physical or is it on the spiritual? Which should it be? The spiritual should be up here. 
Because if you have cancer and you're dying, you certainly need the spiritual up here. If you're out of fellowship with God and you're, you're filthy rich, the spiritual needs to be up here to reach up to God no matter what's going on. And she was thinking, boy, if I had that water, I wouldn't even have to come back to this well. And I think it's very interesting how Jesus probably, probably surprised this woman with his answer. He, he, he could have said, well, let, let me have your bucket. That's not what he said. He said, if you'll drop that bucket down to the bottom of the well, you're going to find the... No, not what he said. Go call your husband. Isn't that interesting? Now listen, this is the master teacher at work here. I'm offering something to you that's a gift from God. I'm offering something to you that's called eternal life. I'm really using a figure of speech about the living water, but if you accept what I'm offering you, you will never thirst again. But Jesus is trying to develop a thirst for spiritual matters and not physical. But who? what would you have thought? Probably the same thing I would. Well, that'd be great. I, I, you know, how many of you take medicine? Don't raise your hands. And how'd you like to quit? No more medicine the rest of your life. And, and little things here and there. Well, Jesus is not going to fix all that either. But he certainly can fix our spiritual problems. And Jesus talks to this woman. He says, go call your husband. Now, we know that the Lord knew the situation with her. But he knows your situation. He knows mine too. He knows what I might need to talk about. Or think about. And I could just imagine all this is going great, you know, uh, living water, no more thirst. What's my husband got to do with this? Can you imagine the surprise that may have been on her face? Well, what does that have to do with it? But you know, he had sparked such an interest in this woman's mind and, and, you know, a man might have gotten mad and walked off. Some women might too. I can just imagine the look on her face. But what's Jesus doing? Okay, you want this water? We need to do a personal examination of where you are in life. Did you know that Jesus taught about repentance? Did you know that John the Baptist taught about repentance in Matthew 3 and verse 2? John, Matthew 4, 17, Luke 13, 3 and 5 for Jesus means change of mind that leads to a change of action. If you and I want to go to heaven, we have to examine ourselves and make necessary changes, whatever they may be. One of the reasons that many people will walk away from a Bible study is they'll get into something that they have to face head on. They don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not cha- I have been working with a person for a long time. I'll never give this up. I think maybe if I work on you long enough, you will. But maybe not. There was something that had to be changed in her life. Everybody who wants eternal life must examine where they are in life and make the changes that God wants them to make. Now, Jesus doesn't get into the details about the changes. I'm sure he talked to her about it. But, you know, the, at least the woman was, number five, she was sincere. She was, she was open about it. 
I don't have a husband. I wonder if she thought that was the end of it. Because she doesn't know anything that he's going to say next. I don't have a husband. Let's talk about something else. What did Jesus say to her? Jesus said, You correctly said, I have no husband, for you've had five. Now, he's just met this woman. Never seen her in his life, nor she him. But he brings up something about her that only God would know. She had, he hadn't been there and talked to anybody to find out about this woman. And so, now the word for husband here is the, the typical Greek word for male, A-N-E-R. Uh, in First uh, Timothy 2 and verse 8, the men are to pray everywhere. Same word. But sometimes it can be translated husband, depending on the context. Sometimes it could simply be a man. She could have had five, five men before and was living with one then, or she could have been married five times and was living with... Nonetheless, she had a tough past, didn't she? You think she might have had some children? You think life might have been hard on this woman? Can you imagine being married five times? I don't think I'm ever going to find the right one. But I'll keep trying. But nonetheless, her, her past is, is very, is very checkered. And, and yet she doesn't get up and walk away. I want you to think about something. When we're trying to teach some people, some of them may get up and walk off. Close it up. I'm not talking anymore. Some people say, well, I need to think about that. Don't give up on the people that may need to think about that. Jesus continued this woman and and she said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Oh yeah, more than a prophet. And then she brings up worship. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. At one time there was a temple there but it had been torn down. But it was where they chose to worship. And yet they claim, they only followed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't read the prophets. And they were looking for the Messiah because she was. And so they felt like that that was okay. And there's some biblical history to that that we won't get into. But nonetheless, that's where we worship. Well, you Jews say Jerusalem's where you ought to worship. No, actually God was the one who said that's where the Jewish people ought to worship. But you know Jesus doesn't get into either one of those things. He doesn't get into some long drawn out discussion about Gerizim versus Jerusalem. Why? Because something is changing about worship. And she needed to understand it. Jesus said in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, verse 22, for salvation is of the Jews. We, As far as things right now are concerned... We have it right with God. But an hour is coming in which and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, Jesus is saying it's not location. It's what's going on. The spiritual part of worship is my attitude and my preparation in my mind and heart to worship. The truth is the fact that I follow what the Bible teaches 
as a member of the New Testament church to worship God according to its instruction. And so Jesus says, look here, it's not about Gerizim, it's not about Jerusalem, but I'll tell you something, something's about to change, and he doesn't say it, but also it's going to be for all kinds of people. You know, eventually Samaritans became Christians, and this whole city went out because of her. So when you get down to point number four, she was a searching woman. She comes to believe that Jesus is no ordinary man. I perceive that you're a prophet. And she brings up this theological point of worship. But then something else. It's very important. She was a Messiah-seeking woman. We might be surprised at that. We might be very surprised at that because she said, The woman said to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. Messiah was the Hebrew word, Mashiach, for in Hebrew and Christ in the Greek. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. Isn't that amazing? Well, she read about that in Deuteronomy. And she she knew that that a Messiah was coming. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. I think it's amazing that she knew that much. She knew He was coming. She knew He would have superior knowledge. And Jesus plainly affirms that I who am speaking to you am He. Can you imagine the heartbeat? You've got to be kidding me. You are the Messiah? You're the one that we're looking for? Well, He'd offered ample evidence that He was. Plenty of evidence. Nobody could have known those things about her life except God. And he was very clear. He didn't say you've had three husbands when she'd actually had five. He said, you've had five. And besides that, you've got a man now that's not your husband. And obviously he may have said some other things. So she rushes to the city. And she goes back and she talks to the people. And, and you know, was, could this could this be the Christ? I'm having to watch the clock. So could this be the Christ? Stay with me for a minute. Could this be the Messiah we've been looking for? You know what? He told me everything I ever did. Now, she she was not pleased about it, but she was pleased to find Him. You know, people who really recognize the power of God don't mind talking about their past and knowing that God's willing to forgive them. And so she goes back to the people... And so all the people there in Sychar, so they come out there to see Jesus, and he spends two days with those people. Two whole days. And finally, they finally said, you know, we've not really come to believe in him because of what you said. And I'm paraphrasing, we heard him for ourselves. And you mean, to, yep, he told me everything I'd ever done. And he may have told them some similar things. I don't know. But here's some things that we can learn from this situation. We have a Savior. He is the Savior of the world. The one who gave his life blood for every person. And that Savior has a powerful saving message for the world. And it's not up to you or to me to decide who to share it with. Sometimes we think, well, this person will probably listen. 
Who would have thought that this woman would have listened to Jesus? I wouldn't. But Jesus taught her anyway. Jesus ignored the barriers. He didn't see a Samaritan woman. He saw a soul in need of salvation and a lost one. So He dealt with her issues and patiently addressed them with truth. He told her what she did, what she didn't, that he, he told her about herself, but then he told her something she didn't know about worship. If she, if he got her attention the first time, he certainly got it the second time as well. By talking to one sinful, rejected, needful woman, many other people came to be believers. Now, Jesus would talk about the fact that the disciples come back and said, listen, I have food to eat you don't know anything about. Aren't you hungry? Aren't you hungry? I have food to eat that you don't know about. And I'm thinking, Jesus makes me feel ashamed sometimes that the things I'll put up as being more important than the things that are needed to help other people to know the Christ. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 5, where Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. So we're not preaching ourselves. Jesus could. I can't, but we can preach Him. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Read this. Meditate on it. See what I missed that you can learn from it. But let it be a guide to remind us there are people who need the gospel. And if Jesus had not have talked to this woman, she'd have been lost. I'm convinced, and I'll have to bring this to a conclusion, that this laid a foundation, a strong, solid foundation for the preaching of the gospel once the church started and the disciples went into all the world and they got over and said, oh yeah, we know about that. Jesus laid the foundation. Now you folks go build on it. Learn from it. Let's be like Jesus. Talk to people. Give them a chance. It's up to them what they're going to do with it. You may be in the audience today and you're not a Christian. You may be old enough to be one, but you're not. You believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You believe that God came down here in the form of a man? And died for your sins? Do you believe that if you'll turn from your sins and what the Bible calls repentance and be baptized for remission of sins, you can become a Christian according to Acts 2 and verse 38? And we see that 4,000 people did that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. And verse 47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. You know why? Because people were telling other people about it. That's the only way. If you're here and you're, you're, you're lukewarm, you're not where you need to be spiritually, be more like this woman and say, you know, there are things that I've done I need to change. I want to go to heaven. If you need to respond to Christ, not me, I'm just so many pounds of wet dirt. But the Son of God bids you come as we stand and sing. Thank <laughs> you.